0: we return to the uh, Bible survey tonight and start the New Testament so um, therefore because you all know your Bible so well you know that that means Matthew tonight. Uh, Now we're not going to do this in one talk Um, I would imagine it's going to be two talks but um, nevertheless we'll dive straight in. Now Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew traditionally Um, held to have been written by Matthew, um, who is also in in, in the Bible referred to as Levi, and he was of course the tax collector. And the push behind this particular Gospel, because as we're going to see as we go through them, each Gospel has its own particular push. And uh, the the push behind Matthew is that this is aimed squarely um, at Jewish readers, So, this Gospel is aimed, you know, sort of right to the Jews and it sets out to prove Jesus' Messiahship, firstly, as prophesied in the Old Testament, but then secondly, um, Matthew proves that Jesus was the Messiah on the basis of the Pharisaical teaching that was prevalent at the time. And as we're going to see, there were various messianic signs which according to the teaching of the Pharisees, only Messiah could do. So the point is, Matthew, he's proving that Jesus was the Messiah, and he does this um, as prophesied in the Old Testament. So he shows that the Old Testament proves that Jesus was Messiah, but he also refers and demonstrates how Jesus proved that he was the Messiah, according to Pharisaic Judaism and its teaching at the time. Okay, right. Well, chapter one, and uh, Matthew starts off with uh, Joseph's genealogy, so Jesus's family tree, um, on his adopted father's side. Um, and it goes back to Abraham and uh, leaves it there because this is concerned with uh, Jesus being the Jewish Messiah so um, you know to that end Abraham was the important one so uh, Jesus' genealogy through Joseph um, back to um, Abraham and uh, when we come on to Luke we'll see that Luke traces Mary's ancestry all the way back to Adam. Then we move on and uh, we are introduced to Mary, this, this young girl who is made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Um, she's engaged to Joseph, who sets out to divorce her quietly. Um, under Jewish law at the time, if you were engaged, that was so binding that only a divorce would, would do. So you had to get a divorce from engagement. And um, so he sets out to divorce her quietly, uh, you know, sort of uh, to make it easier for her. Uh, he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace because obviously at the time he had no choice but to um, obviously, uh, you know, assume that she had been unfaithful before they were even married. But um, an angel appears to him in a dream and uh, it explains that uh, Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit and that she would give birth to a son who was to be called Jesus. And he was to be called Jesus because he, he would save his people from their sins. Uh, Jesus means God is Saviour and it is simply the Greek transliteration of the Old Testament name Joshua or Yeshua. Uh, So the actual name means God is Saviour. Matthew then uh, indicates how this fulfils a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 and uh, a prophecy there of a virgin being with child and uh, this child should be called Emmanuel and Emmanuel means God with us. And um, also, it's uh, interesting just to note here that uh, Matthew makes quite clear that this thing about the coming Messiah, that he, the Messiah, will save his people from their sins. Now is Israel were God's people, and uh, Emmanuel, God with us, and can you see it's quite clear that Messiah is going to become God himself, having become a man. So Messiah is clearly going to be the God man anyway Joseph wakes up from from the dream and uh, he obeys the angel and he takes Mary as his wife um, but obviously they didn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born now when we get on to Luke, there are other details, um, you know, sort of given up to the birth of Jesus, but Matthew skips all them. Different Gospels home in on different bits and pieces, and, you know, sort of like during this, you know, the, these talks, we're going to fit it all together, but uh, Matthew misses out some bits now, and uh, in, in chapter 2, um, he jumps ahead a couple of years to, um, after Jesus' birth to the visit. Of the the Magi, and I'll just mention at this point that uh, in the general teaching series we did three talks, didn't we, on the Nativity, and that went into them and the <clears throat> the chronology in much greater detail. But anyway, in chapter two, Matthew jumps ahead. A couple of years have gone by. Uh, Jesus has been born. And uh, we have the the visit of the Magi. I was going to say the visit of the Magi there for one moment, <laughs> but I managed to correct myself in time. Uh, the Magi or the the wise men. Now, of course, these were the legacy. They were from from Persia, from from the east, and uh, they were the legacy of uh, Daniel's time. You remember Daniel, a believer, ended up um, in in charge of the Magi. So God getting Daniel uh, into Persia and Babylon and all that. Um, this. This meant that, um, that there was a, a, a believing strain, a divine strain of Magi. And of course one of the prophecies of Daniels, the famous one about the, um, the uh, 70 weeks, actually indicated very accurately when Messiah was going to, to, to die. And so the Magi in the east, out Persia way, who were still believers following the Lord, they would have known that any time now, they would have known that only 30 odd years off from from the time when Messiah is going to die. So they were expecting the birth of Messiah really soon. And, uh, you know, so now they turn up and uh, they head to Jerusalem and uh, they're going around asking, where is the one who is born King of the Jews? And uh, they they told people that they'd seen his star in the east. Not that they saw the star in the east, i.e. the star was in the east. That'd be the wrong way around. They saw the star when they were in the east. The star brought them west. They travelled west to Israel. And uh, they went to Jerusalem. Now then, Herod, and this is Herod the Great, uh, through this series, we've got to sort out our Herods. This is Herod the Great. Um, he hears this, and he's he's disturbed because he doesn't want any competition. And um, so what he does is is he calls all the chief priests and the teachers of the law, all his religious advisors, um, together and and he, he asks them, "Look, where is Messiah going to be born? And um, they they quote Micah chapter five, which which was the the verse in the Old Testament that was understood to be the prophecy. That um Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem in Judah, and they were absolutely dead right because Jesus Messiah was born in Bethlehem in Judah, and uh, in the prophecy it says that a ruler and shepherd of Israel will come from Bethlehem in Judah so um Herod now now knows the the location of the the birth of Messiah remember this is after the birth though this is after you know Jesus has been born so what he does Herod Uh, He gets the Magi together, like in in secret, and uh, he pretends, because he he doesn't want any competition, he wants to kill Messiah. Of course, obviously, in Herod, we see Satan, you know, moving in order to kill Messiah. Um, But he pretends that he wants to worship this this king as well, and uh, sends them to Bethlehem to begin their search. He says, well, I don't know where he is now, but he was born in Bethlehem to go start you know searching there and he says when you found him will you come back and report back to me because um i'm going to want to come and worship him as well obviously this was a trick herod wanted to kill jesus the magi didn't at the moment know that they were being um being tricked so uh, they they carry on following this this star as it were and it eventually leads them to Mary and Joseph's house where Jesus is. Now, no, it doesn't say Bethlehem, All right, The Magi didn't visit Jesus in Bethlehem. That's, uh, you know, not actually accurate. Uh, Jesus was 18 months, two years old by now. And uh, But nevertheless, they, they worshipped him and uh, they brought their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And uh, so here was their acknowledgement that this Messiah prophesied by their leader all those years ago, the founder of their Christian strain of Magi, if you like. Daniel, all those years before, uh, now they've found that prophesied Messiah and they're worshipping him. Gentiles, yet they know that here is God become man. And of course, one of the main themes is, is all the time that Israel thought salvation was just for Israel. Salvation was never just for Israel. Israel was the means of salvation, but salvation was for the Gentiles as well. And here come Gentile Magi to worship Jesus. And, um, and then have, having done this, they are warned in a dream. Throughout the nativity, you know, sort of like God, the supernatural speaking is, is, is very often through, through dreams. And uh, they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod and that they've been tricked. And so they went home by another route. And uh, then an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt um, for the reason that Herod was going to try and seek Jesus out and kill him. And uh, this, this Joseph did and stayed in Egypt until Herod's death. And uh, Matthew says that this, this fulfilled uh, a prophecy in Hosea uh, 11 verse 1, which um, in the context of Hosea referred to the nation of Israel and it's out of Egypt I called my son. But one of the things we saw when we did those three talks um, on the birth of Jesus, was how Jesus recapitulated the history of Israel. So that, you know, the, the, the history of Israel in the Old Testament, much of Jesus' life mirrored it. And, and so here you've got, out of Egypt I called my son, which happened to Israel as a nation. And yet here, Jesus is taken into Egypt when Herod dies. He's brought out of Egypt. So there's God out of Egypt I called my son. So you get this recapitulation in Jesus's life of Israel's history. And um, eventually Herod realized that he'd been tricked now by the Magi and that they weren't going to come and report back to him. So he'd have probably been aware that they found him, but uh, he, still, he, he still didn't know where Messiah was. And so what he did is that he had... All boys under two years of age in Bethlehem and the surrounding area killed, which fulfilled Matthew tells us a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31. And, and obviously, I, I'm not reading it because we're just flitting through this a chapter at a time. But all these prophecies I'm referring to are in the text of Matthew. They're there for you to to read at your leisure. Matthew then moves on to Herod's death. Um. And uh, now let's let's just sort out our Herods here. This is Herod the Great, all right. And uh, he he was the king of Judea and Galilee, which uh, Judea was was the south and Galilee was the north. So he was basically over the the whole of Israel at that time. Now, um, when he died, all right, he he had sons. Um, the 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 son who who reigned in um. Judea, in in the south was called um, Archelaus, but um, eventually it was his son Herod Antipas, who became the tetrarch. Now tetrarch means ruler of one fourth. All right, you know Rome would, would you know sort of like split areas up into certain numbers, and a tetrarch is a ruler of one fourth. All right, of an area. And Herod the Great's son Herod Antipas was the tetrarch of Galilee. Um, that's the north of Israel, and it was him, Herod Antipas who had um, John the Baptist put to death and who was confronted by Jesus when Jesus was tried and eventually crucified. So it was Herod, Herod the Great, who tried to kill Messiah when Jesus was a baby. (coughs) But it was his son Herod Antipas who had John the Baptist put to death and who also played a part in the crucifixion of Jesus under Pilate, in the, in the sense that Herod could have stopped it, but didn't. And so that was, was his son, Herod Antipas. And uh, he was also, um, he, he ruled in the area called Perea, which was, was the area just across the, um, the, the east side of the um, Jordan, where the transjordan tribes had settled Do you remember some of the tribes rather than going across jordan into the promised land they settled in what became known as transjordan well that by the time of jesus was an area known as Perea, and uh, herod was was also ruling over that as well so anyway herod dies uh, an angel appears to joseph in a dream saying okay right go go back to um to israel but uh, when they they heard that um, Herod's son Archelaus, I just mentioned him, when they heard that Archelaus was was ruling in the south, which was where their home was, they were from the south, Judea. When they heard that, what they did is they settled, therefore, in Galilee in the north. So when they went back to Israel, the angel said, look, it's okay, go back to Israel, no problem. But they settled in the north, in Galilee, and uh, they settled in a town called Nazareth. So they lived in the south, Judea, they went into Egypt, they've come back into Israel but they've settled like up north, alright, in Galilee in a town called Nazareth. And uh, Matthew then says that that, that this fulfilled um, the prophets saying that he will be called a Nazarene. And uh, interesting that because you won't find that quote anywhere in the Old Testament at all. There is no prophecy in the Old Testament that says that Messiah was going to be called a Nazarene, alright. Uh, so. What have we got here? What we've got here is that uh, you remember, like, the Corinthians, all right, were so immoral. You know, the town of Corinth was so immoral that the name Corinth became a byword for immorality. So in the then known world, if you said, oh, he's a Corinthian, you were saying he's immoral. Okay. Now, in the same way, Nazareth, like up north in Israel, got a reputation for being a bit despised. Uh, you know, like, you know, nothing good will come out of that particular area. It was kind of a backwards and, you know, sort of like the cosmopolitan Jews kind of looked down on it. So a Nazarene became like a byword. If you were a Nazarene, you were worthless. You know, you were like the lower ranks. Pikey, I yeah. suppose some people might say. Okay. Now, I think what Matthew's saying here is that, that it's, it's significant that Jesus was brought up in Nazareth and therefore became a Nazarene and the very fact of where he was brought up fulfilled the fact that Messiah was going to be despised and rejected because if you came from Nazareth you were no good kind of like Neasden no is that going to upset people who live in Neasden (laughs) forget Neasden all right but it's that that kind of idea okay and um so you know sort of here we have you know sort of like Matthew almost playing on words and you know this was significant Messiah was going to be despised and rejected which obviously according to the old testament was the prophecy Right, now, chapter 3, and uh, we now jump forward to um, Jesus' adulthood. And um, we have the, the ministry of John the Baptist, and uh, there to prepare the way um, for Jesus. And uh, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 40. Uh, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and from Luke we know that Jesus and John the Baptist are actually related, doubtless uh, cousins and uh, John the Baptist wore camel hairs, um, clothes and he ate wild honey and locusts. So not, not, not the sort of bloke you'd invite to your party and um, he'd baptise people in the River Jordan if they confessed their sins and uh, but when the Pharisees and the Sadducees would turn up to have an ogle at all this baptism going on John the Baptist's like cry to them was, You brood of vipers, produce fruit that befits repentance. The axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So you can understand that John the Baptist was not flavor of the month with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, in fact, Jesus was going to become even less so with them. And uh, then John the Baptist went on to speak of one who was more powerful than he, Uh, one whose sandals he wasn't worthy to, to carry and who would baptize them not with water but with the holy spirit and fire and that this this coming messiah would um gather his wheat into the barn and burn the chaff and so this was heavy messianic stuff anyway jesus comes and presents himself to john and says john baptize me john doesn't want to uh he says no look need to be baptized by you but Jesus insists uh, you know therefore as Jesus said fulfilling all righteousness Um, and then as Jesus came up out of the water the Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove and there's a a voice from heaven and uh, this this is my beloved son um, listen to him blah 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 so there you have God the Father's seal of approval on Jesus like Jesus as it were come of age the son is now going to be doing the business of his father. Right, chapter 4. Jesus is immediately led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness um, where he's tested by Satan. Now he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and obviously he was hungry as a result. Now again notice the recapitulation of Israel's history. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was up in Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. So can you see all the the, the kind of like this, you know, recapitulation? Jesus has been led into Egypt, led out of Egypt, now he's going into the wilderness. That is exactly what happened to Israel. Led to Egypt, out of Egypt, into the wilderness. All right, and uh, now Jesus is hungry and Satan comes to him and there are three recorded temptations. We know from Luke that there are actually many more, but uh, Matthew records three um firstly he says to jesus uh, tell the stones to become bread and um now this was a temptation for jesus to satisfy legitimate desires and appetites but that would have been disobedience to god at the time because jesus should have been fasting so this first is the temptation to indulge in things that are legitimate and right in themselves but when god doesn't want you to for whatever reason so you know it's just sort of like there's nothing wrong with eating but if God has called you to fasting then it's wrong to eat alright and uh, Jesus answers this by saying man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and uh, you know so there's the time you know in effect you know in John Jesus said my food is to do the will of him who sent me so you know sort of like for Jesus fasting was more important than eating at that time uh, because he, he knew that, that God had called him to fasting um, then, then the second uh, temptation. Satan stood him on the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem right up the top and uh, suggested that he threw himself off so that angels could catch him and you know and uh, Satan even misquoted one of the Psalms as well to back his point up uh, now this was, um, this was a temptation to unbelief and living by sight rather than faith. Jesus did not need any dramatic signs and wonders for knowing who he was, he knew who he was and so, a you know, like jumping, launching off of the temple in full view of everyone and having the angels catch him and bear him up. This would have been the temptation to, to go after signs and wonders for their own sake, rather than just trusting in the Lord. And so Jesus' answer to that is, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So, so Jesus, part you see how each of these temptations relate to us as well. And then thirdly, Satan took him to the highest of all mountains and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, I'll give these to you, alright, if you bow down and worship me. Now, here is the temptation to compromise for short-term success. Because, of course, Satan is saying, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, they'll all bow down to you. Well, the truth is, all the kingdoms of the world are going to bow down to Jesus. It hasn't happened yet, but it most certainly will. So therefore, if Jesus had kind of given in to Satan, can you see, the, the, you know, compromise, take the easy way. Often God's plans are long-term and we take the hard way. But here, Satan is, is tempting Jesus to compromise for short-term success. Jesus' answer, now look, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I'm not going to worship you, Satan, and everything you're offering me anyway I'm going to get in my father's good time eventually. And um, you know so there's the um, the temptations and all of these responses that Jesus gives, all these quotes come from Deuteronomy. And of course Deuteronomy uh, is partly the record of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. So again you see this significance, the recapitulation in Jesus's life of Israel's history. And uh, then then after that Satan left him and, and angels actually came and attended him. And that's interesting Jesus didn't bow down to the temptations and yet he didn't have to wait long and now he's eating and he has got angels looking after him so that was that that was great now at this point all right Matthew jumps forward a year or so when we come on to John's gospel we're going to see that Jesus after the temptation in the wilderness Jesus um, spent a year or so traveling around in Judea and Samaria preaching. All right, for a year or so. Matthew skips that completely. In fact, all all the gospels do except John. But we now skip forward a month, uh, a year. Okay, and um, Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been imprisoned, and he heads back up to Galilee in the north because he spent a year down south, Judea and um, Samaria. So now he heads back up to. Galilee up to the north and um, he briefly goes back to Nazareth uh, where he was brought up as a child and uh, then he goes to live in Capernaum which is right you know by Lake Galilee Um, and that's the area of Zebulun and Naphtali that's where those two tribes settled uh, in the promised land and that was a direct fulfillment of uh, Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 2 and he now commences his two-year Galilean ministry. For two years, Jesus preached up in the north. And Matthew says that the burden of his message was simply this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, it's at this point that he calls two sets of brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew, and James and John. They're by the lake, they're fishermen, And Jesus goes up to them, and this was when he says, you know, follow me, and he says, I will make you fishers of men. Now then, when we come on to John's Gospel, we'll see that this is not the first time that Jesus has met these guys and called them. Jesus had met them during his first year, which he spent um, in Judea, as recorded by John's Gospel, and we'll see another meeting. With them there. This is the second time that Jesus has met Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John, and uh, calls them uh, to be his disciples. And um, so, you know, they now join him. And uh, Jesus travels throughout Galilee, so all over the north of Israel, uh, preaching the good news of the kingdom, um, teaching, healing, and delivering people who were demonized that is Matthew says that was the ministry of Jesus and uh, he tells us that large crowds from all over Israel uh, began to, to follow him and wherever he went they were there. Now when we come on to chapters 5, 6 and 7 I'm going to do this in one clump because it's the the Sermon on the Mount and so they um, need to be done together and um, this, this would have been given on one of the hillsides uh, around the, the sea of Galilee, or the lake of Galilee. It's called the Sea of Galilee, but it was a lake, really. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, begins with what are called the Beatitudes. And a Beatitude simply means a declaration of blessing. So Jesus kind of like goes through a list of things, and he's saying, to the extent that this is true of you, you are blessed of God. We'll just go through them very quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, knowing that you've got nothing to contribute to God, it's all of grace. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. The merciful. The pure in heart. The peacemakers. And then those who are persecuted for righteousness. And then he goes on and he says those who have their name cast out as evil on account of the Son of Man. And he says in that day leap for joy. So he says you should never be happier than when you're being persecuted, which is a difficult one. But if you're being persecuted and you know it's because of your faithfulness to Jesus, well then there's a sense in which even though it might be hard, there is a leaping for joy that can happen. So there you've got the Beatitudes, Jesus saying to the extent that this is true of you, then you're blessed. And then he runs a whole gamut of of teaching like one subject after the other rather like um you know a 25 point sermon um he does the teaching about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world you know salt preserves things stops it going rotten and the presence of true believers in the world has a restraining effect on evil and he says that you're the light of the world jesus was the light of the world he said that he was those who follow him are the light of the world as well because jesus is in them and of course light drives back the darkness so you've got salt which drives back the rottenness you've got light that pushes back the darkness so the point is you've got a a vanguard god's fifth column if you like that has an effect of, of of just making that world a bit lighter and a bit more pure than otherwise it would have been then jesus goes on to say that he came Not to abolish the law of Moses, he didn't come to destroy it, to to go against it, but to fulfill it completely. He then goes on to teach how murder and anger are on a par with each other. That, I mean, you might not have murdered anyone and it's good. You know, it's always better not to murder someone than it is to murder somebody. I mean, this is basic, you know, kind of like morality here, all right? But he says, nevertheless, even if you've never murdered someone and it's good that you haven't, but when there's that sinful anger in your heart, well, then. Murder is in your heart, and as far as God's concerned, the sin, to a certain extent, is the same. Uh, He then moves on, he says, adultery and lusting. He says, you might not be committing adultery with your neighbour's wife, but he says, if you're looking at her lustfully wanting to, same thing, the sin is in the heart. It's not just the outward act, it's in the heart. This, of course, is the whole push behind the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is demonstrating that true righteousness Far from being mere external acts and behaviour, which is what Pharisaic Judaism taught at the time, Jesus is saying no, because you can have all the stuff on the outside looking all right, but inside, you know, you can be full of, you know, all manner of evil. So Jesus is teaching that righteousness is a matter of the heart. It's what's inside you. It's your intents, your motives. That's the push behind the Sermon on the Mount, demonstrating that Pharisaic Judaism, with its, its externalism all the time, how you act is all that matters. Jesus is saying, no, righteousness is an internal thing. And it's something that only God can put in your heart. Um, he, he goes on, uh, he teaches about divorce and saying that there should be no divorce except for unfaithfulness. For them, divorce was easy. You know, dissatisfied with your wife? Well, tell her an half off, get another one. It was as simple as that. Um, talks about oaths. And the importance that let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, you don't have to say, oh, on my mother's grave or anything ridiculous like that. If you are known for always speaking the truth, then why do you need to emphasize that you're speaking the truth with an oath? Nonsense. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, He says, no eye for an eye, but turn the other cheek. No revenge or anything like that. Um, He says about loving your enemies. Now, Pharisaic Judaism said you had to hate your enemies, not love them. Well, Jesus disagreed with that. Then he moves on. He teaches about giving, about prayer, and about fasting. These things to be done in secret, not to be seen of men, and um, and within the context of those three things—giving, prayer, and fasting—that's when he teaches us, like what what's called the Lord's Prayer, but it's a, a misnomer. It's the disciples' prayer, and uh, you know the importance of forgiving people again. Then he deals with treasures in heaven and not serving money or mammon, that it's one, you'll love the one or hate the other, you know, sort of you've got to choose, it's money or Jesus. Then he deals with not worrying, uh, you know, life. God is God and if we trust him, what's there to worry about? He'll provide and to seek first the kingdom of God and, and all the things that you're worrying about, stop worrying about them, seek God and his kingdom and the Lord will take care of it all uh... then he deals with wrong judgment the idea about you know you you can't go up and sort of like say hey I've, I've got to take the speck out of your eye mate when you've got a log in your own first of all take the log out of your own eye before you deal with the speck in your brother's eye and of course he's dealing there with wrong judgment you know that condemnatory you know sort of like spirit you know when you're, you're just going at what's wrong in everyone else uh, without taking stock of what's wrong in you it's not saying there's not a time to judge and correct. Jesus is saying it's got to be done correctly. There mustn't be wrong judgment, hypocritical judgment is completely out for the Christian. Uh, then Jesus goes on saying, Ask and it shall be given, seek and you'll find, knock on the door shall be opened. So there's prayer and faith. Keep going, you know, believe in, in the Lord, you know, prayer, faith. Then he talks about the narrow way. There's a narrow way to life, and few find it, but there's a broad way to destruction. Most people are on that way. Then he talks about the tree and its fruit, and he warns against false prophets. He says they are going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, They'll look good, but their fruit will be wrong. He says a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And so, you know, like, by your fruit, you'll know them. And, of course, the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that's when he says, look, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, you know, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So people aren't always what they seem. And of course, there are always loads and loads of religious people who are just that. They're religious. They're not Christian. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And uh, and then he he ends it with the story of the wise and the foolish builders. One built his house on, on the rock. The other built his house on the sand. And, uh, you know, and Jesus says, well, if you do these words, if you take it on board and live by it, then you'll be building your house on the, the, the rock and, and when the winds and the waves come, it won't, it won't collapse. Whereas if you build it on the sand, be hearers of the word, not doers of it, well then, you know, sort of like, it will collapse when um, testing comes. And, uh, and Matthew tells us that the crowds were amazed because he talked with authority and uh, their teachers, the Pharisees, didn't teach with authority. And uh, so there you have Jesus now really squaring up uh, with the Pharisees, his teaching on what righteousness is. Uh, The Pharisees would not have agreed with this teaching. They saw it purely in terms of externals. Right, chapter 8. Jesus heals a leper. Now here's the first of our messianic signs. This isn't Jesus proving his messiahship according to the Old Testament. I mean, he, he, he did in lots of ways, as we're seeing. But Pharisaical Judaism at the time taught that there were, you know, and I refer you to the tradition series where we went into all this in great detail, but Pharisaic Judaism at the time taught that there were certain miracles that only Messiah could do. There were miracles that anyone could be used to do, but there were some miracles only Messiah could. And the healing of a leper was one. Because here, in Matthew chapter 8, the first Jewish leper in history is healed, and uh, and of course, um, what you've got in Leviticus chapter thirteen, you had the rules for diagnosing leprosy and getting them out of the camp. Um, in chapter fourteen, Leviticus chapter fourteen, you had all the instructions for all the sacrifices of thanksgiving to do when a leper had been healed. Now then, Leviticus thirteen had been put into action many, 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 many times throughout Israel's history chapter 14 had never ever ever been invoked because no Jewish leper had ever been healed. Go throughout the whole of the Old Testament history Gentile lepers got healed but never Jewish ones so the Pharisees taught this is a messianic sign only Messiah can heal a leper when Leviticus 14 is invoked proving the healing of a leper there's Messiah. Well what does Jesus do? He heals a leper This now sets in motion. um, The Pharisees had to convene special meetings and and they had to interrogate him and investigate and and this was the perfect way for Jesus to get the Pharisees attention. He worked a messianic miracle. Right then we we have the story of um, a Roman centurion who sends to Jesus. Uh, From Luke we know that he does this through mediaries, uh, through, through friends and uh, but he's got a a servant who's very dear to him who's ill um, unto death and uh, he gets word to jesus and saying look you know just speak the word and my servant will be healed he said "Look, there's no need to come to my house um you know i'm not worthy for you to come into my house and he says but uh, i'm a man under authority as well and uh, if i say to someone go he goes if i say stay he stays and um, and so he's saying jesus all you have to do is speak the word and i know my servant will be healed and uh, Jesus marvelled at the faith of this Roman centurion. He said, not in all Israel have I found faith like this. And uh, so here again you have a Gentile showing more faith than Jews. Then Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And uh, this, this sparks off um, a, a, a massive kind of like healing thing and people are brought from all over the area and uh, Jesus is, is just heals everyone and all those who are demonised um, he delivers from their evil spirits and um, Matthew says that this fulfils Isaiah 53 that he took our infirmities and carried our diseases. Then Jesus is approached by two different teachers of the law uh, and they kind of like represent two different types of people. Uh, the, the the first guy comes to Jesus and uh, he he says that um, he'll follow him. So here's a teacher of the law coming up to Jesus. I'll I'll follow you, Jesus. No problem. And Jesus tells him that the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, look, just think about it. You might end up homeless if you follow me. So I'm going to call him Mister Too Fast. All right. Um, but then afterwards, another guy comes up to Jesus, and we're going to see that he's Mr. Too Slow, and uh, he says, "I want to follow you, Jesus." He says, "But um, let me bury my father first. And he's not not saying his dad's at home having died, and 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 you know he's not going to see the funeral through. He's saying, "Look." let let me wait till my father has lived out his days because i mean he'll you know he's uh, he's old he'll die soon blah 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 then i'll come and follow you I, what he's saying is this guy's saying i want to follow you jesus but my family comes first and uh, and jesus says to him quite offensive uh, let the dead bury their own dead and of course there you have mr too slow some people are too fast to say i'll follow you jesus other people are too slow and uh, so we have both types represented there Then we have uh, Jesus uh, in in the disciples. They go off in the boat on Lake Galilee and a storm comes up and uh, the disciples think that they're going to die and Jesus is asleep in the boat and he wakes up and he tells the storm to go away and it does. And the disciples say, what what kind of man is this? Well, he was their Messiah, wasn't he? Then we have the story of the two gathering demoniacs. Mark and Luke each only mention one of them, but uh, there are in fact two of them. And uh, you remember that the demons begged Jesus not to torture them. Uh, Luke adds the bit about that the demons say, don't send us to the abyss or, or Tartarus or the bottomless pit, call it what you will. And, uh, and, and the demons asked to go into the herd of pigs. And Jesus says, go into the herd of pigs. And the pigs dive into the sea and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the people are so freaked out by that that, that they ask Jesus to go away. Look, Jesus, go away, they say. So off Jesus goes. He was despised and rejected of men. So some of his miracles were, hey, yeah, it's great, Jesus. Other miracles were offensive. Jesus, go away. Right. Now, chapter nine, he goes back to Capernaum, like right, his his base, and uh, this 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 is the bit he's teaching in the house, and the paralytic is brought to him on the steps stretcher. You know, they kind of like you know, part the roof and get him in the house like that, 'cause it's it's so crowded. And Jesus says, "Your sins are forgiven." So Jesus forgives his sins, which of course the um the Pharisees consider to be blasphemy. Obviously only God can forgive sins, so it's blasphemy. Well, except it wasn't because Jesus was God. But they're saying, look, no, that's blasphemy. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he says, look, what's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up and be healed and walk? So he then heals them and uh, heals this bloke. And uh, the the, the crowd is filled with awe, and Matthew says that they, they praise God for giving a man such authority. Then we have the calling of Matthew, the the gospel's author. Uh, Matthew the tax collector and um, he invites Jesus back to his house for dinner and Jesus and the disciples go to Matthew's house for dinner. Now although Matthew is a Jew, because he's a tax collector, tax collector is he collected taxes for the occupying Roman forces. He was an untouchable. Tax collectors and sinners, i.e. tax collectors and prostitutes, were in the same kettle of fish. The Jews would not have anything to do with them. They were completely outcast. So Jesus goes back to their, you know, his place for dinner. Who are the oh, There's Jesus and the disciples, but apart from Matthew, who are the other guests at the dinner? Other tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes, because they're the only people who could mix with each other. And uh, the Pharisees challenge this. They're there watching and they tell Jesus that he's doing wrong. And Jesus responds that healthy people don't need a doctor, but the sick. And he tells them, learn the meaning of I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which is a quote from Isaiah 6, verse 6. And he says, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John the Baptist's disciples uh, come and, and ask Jesus why it is that they and the Pharisees fast, but Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. Now, this would have been fasting laws, a la tradition of the elders. Not the law of Moses. There was only one mandatory fast under the law of Moses. But this would have been you know, like the traditions of the elders and that and um and you know sort of like jesus just says that the the guests don't fast when the bridegroom is with them jesus was like you know the bridegroom and the church was going to be his bride um but he says but in the future when i'm taken from them then they'll fast you know so so fasting for the christian was after jesus had, had ascended back into heaven so no problem that they weren't fasting um at that time and this was when jesus said look you know don't don't put unshrunk cloth on an old garment Uh, because it will make the tear even worse. And he says, don't put new wine into old wineskins or they'll burst. And um, you put new wine into new wineskins. And what Jesus is saying, look, this new thing that God is doing amongst you through me, you can't mix all this religious tradition, all these unbiblical traditions that you've got. They won't go. They will not mix. The one will destroy the other. And uh, the ways of men and the traditions of man cannot contain what God is doing. Be like putting new wine in old wine skin, bang, it will just burst. You can't contain what God is doing. Then um, a man, and uh, we know from Mark and Luke that his name is Jairus, uh, who is a synagogue ruler, comes to Jesus and kneels before him. Um, His daughter has died, and he says to Jesus, Will you come home? My, My daughter has died. Jesus sets off with him, but no sooner has he done this, another woman who's had a hemorrhage, internal bleeding, for 12 years, touched his cloak and was healed. And, uh, you know, sort of like Jesus turned to her and said, go in peace, daughter, your, you know, faith has healed you. And then off he goes to, uh, with Jairus to Jairus' house and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And obviously the news... All the time is is spreading out through the area. Remember, all this stuff we're going through is is in a two-year period. Don't imagine it's happening one day and then the next day and then the next day. It's over a two-year period. Um, Then we we have the story of two blind men who'd been following him around for a while. And uh, Jesus healed them. And um, he he told them not to tell anyone, but they, they went and spread the news far and wide. So obviously that... It um, increased Jesus' fame even more. Um, now we have a second messianic sign because a, a demonized mute is brought to him. This is someone who cannot speak because the effect of an indwelling demon. Now, pharisaic Judaism taught that in order to cast a demon out you have to ascertain its name. I mean, this isn't biblical but this is what pharisaic Judaism taught. You had to establish its name, establish communication with it, then cast it out using its name. Therefore, if you had someone who was mute as a result of a demon being in them, either the demon won't talk to you, pharisaic Judaism couldn't cast demons out because the demon wouldn't talk to them. So if it wouldn't talk to them, they couldn't find its name out, so they couldn't cast it out. So they said, right, demons that cause people to be mute, demons who will not talk to you, that is a messianic sign. Only messiah can cast such demons out. Well, Jesus casts the demon out, someone who was mute, and they can talk afterwards. And uh, the crowd says, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, because it was a messianic sign, in the same league as a leper being healed. All right. Now the Pharisees immediately step in. Notice, they now know that Jesus is Messiah. They know beyond doubt, Jesus is proving his Messiahship, not only... By the Old Testament prophecies, he's proving his messiahship according to their extra-biblical teaching about messiah. And they say he did it through the prince of demons. (laughs) They say, no, he did that by the power of the devil. Which just is, 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 is nuts. They are consciously rejecting his messiahship. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was messiah. The problem was he was the wrong type of messiah for them, but they knew he was messiah. Then Matthew tells us how Jesus continues this Galilean ministry travelling round the north um, of Israel teaching, preaching and healing. And uh, Matthew tells us how he had compassion on the crowd because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And of course here was Israel's true shepherd. That true shepherd prophesied throughout the Old Testament, here he is. In John's Gospel as Jesus said, I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it's at this point where Jesus says to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Now we come on to chapter 10, and it's now we have the official calling of the 12 disciples and their commissioning as the twelve disciples (laughs) Um, and uh, Jesus authorizes them to heal and to cast out demons let's just go through the list all right Simon Peter and Andrew James and John they were two sets of brothers Philip Bartholomew Thomas Matthew or Levi the writer of this gospel James the son of Alphaeus Thaddeus Simon the Zealot, he was a terrorist incidentally, um, it's, I don't like drawing comparisons with Sinn Féin because um, Israel was occupied by a very un, undemocratic force, um, you know, but, but, but the point is he represented the militant wing of the Jews who would sort of, you know, kind of like do acts of violence against the Romans, so he, he was really a bit of a terrorist. Um, you know, not not necessarily in a totally bad way, they're really mega bad terrorists, but I mean, you know, he was a patriot, but that was his ilk, you know, I mean, he was like, you know, sort of a soldier through and through, like, um, so that's Simon the Zealot, and, uh, you know, called the Zealot, because there was a Zealot's party, and they fall, get the Romans out by any means, violent if necessary, and then lastly, Judas, um, who was to become the Betrayer. now jesus sends them out having commissioned them he sends them out on a ministry tour of israel he tells them don't go to gentiles don't go to the samaritans the samaritans were half and half the samaritans were what were left over from the northern kingdom having been taken into captivity and never emerging again The you know the lost tribes but as some of them had kind of like intermingled with you know sort of um you know, sort of like all the nations and that. And they were kind of half half Jewish in heritage, half not. That was the Samaritans and the Jews hated them. So Jesus sends them to Israel, not the Gentiles or the Samaritans. And he warns them that they were going to be persecuted. He warns them that persecution is going to come. And he says, look, if the head of the house is called Baalzebub, how much more the members of his household? So he says, look, if they're going to say horrible things about me, what are they going to say about you? And uh, so he says, whatever I get, you're going to get as well. But he, he tells them, don't fear man, fear God. Man can only destroy the body. God, after he's destroyed the body, he can throw you in, in, into the lake of fire. So he says, if you're going to fear anyone, fear God, you know, not not man. And uh, then he goes on to say, and you're precious to God. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. So, you know, he's saying, look, you know, don't, don't fear man, fear God. God has ultimate power and well. He kept, even the hairs on your head are numbered. So he's saying there's no need to fear man. And this was when Jesus does his thing. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. You know, to turn, like you know, families against each other and blah, blah, blah. And then he goes on to say that, you know, if anyone is to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And, and the absolute sees Jesus saying, look, you're my disciples. This is it now. This, this is it. You, you never know what it's going to cost you next, but, but be ready for anything. You know, deny yourself, take up your cross. That, that's what being a disciple is. Chapter 11. Um, John the Baptist, in prison, down south in Judea. You remember it was when Jesus heard he'd been in prison that Jesus went up north. Now John the Baptist's disciples come up and find Jesus, and um, they're coming to double-check whether he was the Messiah or not. I mean, John the Baptist is obviously having doubts, and uh, John wants to know whether he was the one to come or not. And uh, Jesus, he says, go back to John and tell him what you've seen: the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead raised. Good news is preached to the poor. Now that lot has nothing to do with the tradition of the elders. John the Baptist knew better than to believe in that load of old cods. All right, this is proving by the Old Testament that Jesus was Messiah. And he says, look, just go back and tell John that you're seeing all these fulfillments. And he'll know on the basis of the scripture, the Old Testament, that I am who he originally believed I was. Then Jesus teaches about John being Elijah. And this is in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. And, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, that sort of like John, you you know, like John was going to be Elijah, as it were, to any Jew who received the kingdom of God at that point, we've, we've, we've dealt with that in other talks. I mean Elijah, just before Israel receives the kingdom, Elijah is gonna come, he's one of the two witnesses in the great tribulation, in Revelation. But because Israel was gonna reject Jesus, the coming of the kingdom was postponed, it was future. But for any Jew who received Jesus as their Messiah, the kingdom of God would come in their hearts. Well, John the Baptist would be their Elijah, as it were, the one who came just, just before the kingdom of God came into their hearts. And, uh, and Jesus says that no one is greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest of the Old Testament lot, but he says the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And there you see the, the superiority of the new covenant over the old, um, you know, John the Baptist being the old and, you know, Christians being the new. And, and Jesus likened the generation of his time to a children who refused to be either happy or sad. They couldn't make their mind up. And he said, John came, John the Baptist, an ascetic. I mean, John would have no luxuries at all, ate locusts and stuff like that. So John was an ascetic. And he says, John came, an ascetic, and uh, they said that he was demonised. And he says, the son of man comes, I come eating and drinking. Jesus was not an ascetic. He ate and drank and enjoyed himself. And uh, and he gets called a, a glutton and a drunkard. So it didn't matter what, you know, nothing was right for the Jews at that time. Uh, then, then Jesus, having preached in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, denounces them for rejecting him. And, uh, and he says to them that it, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom on the day of judgment than for them. And he says, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had loads of miracles worked. And they didn't believe and jesus then says and i just leave this to gobsmack you the implications are a bit, bit um you know amazing he says if sodom had seen the miracles that you've seen they would have repented and sodom would still be here so he says on the day of judgment it's going to be far worse for you you know than than sodom and gomorrah and Tyre and sidon because they didn't see the miracles that you did that's 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 gobsmacking and then he, he kind of, he, he, he goes into, into praise, you know, I mean, everyone would have heard him, and he, he thanks his father for hiding all these things from the wise and the learned, and for revealing it to children by the disciples. You know, all those who thought they were wise in religious knowledge and that, they didn't have a clue, they couldn't understand what was going on. But those who came in simple faith, simple dependence, they, they did. And this was when 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 Jesus says the very, famous words, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Um, You know, so we know Jesus because Jesus chose to reveal Himself and the Father to us. And there you have Messiah utterly, totally in control. He thanks God that these things have been revealed to children, to the disciples, to babes as it were. And then he goes on to say, and I've chosen every one of you, and that's why you know. And it's then he goes on and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And he says, look, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, uh, you know, sort of like the wise and the strong and the powerful of the world carrying all their burdens needn't be like that for the disciple because Jesus carries our burdens. Then we move on to chapter 12, and uh, this, this is a pivotal chapter. So here we come to something very, very vital and important. And what happens in this chapter fundamentally changed the way that Jesus conducted his ministry and his mission. So the events of this chapter changed, if you like, how Jesus conducted himself and went about, his calling. And what we have here in chapter 12, the disciples are picking ears of corn on the Sabbath. They're walking through a cornfield and they're picking the corn and they're eating it. Now when we did the traditions series, um, I I, I showed you that in them doing this they violated, uh, I think it was four of the prohibitions in the tradition of the elders. They didn't violate anything according to the law of Moses here, but they violated the tradition of the elders. And it was all to do with what you can and can't do on the Sabbath day. Not from the Old Testament, but the the Pharisaic teachings, the traditions that the Pharisees held to. And uh, so they challenge Jesus about what the disciples were doing on the basis of the tradition of the elders. And what happened, every time uh, I mean, Jesus. Jesus went against the tradition of the elders whenever he could. It wasn't that he tolerated them; he declared war on Pharisaic Judaism and its teachings. And here, the Pharisees challenge him on the basis of the tradition of the elders. Now, Jesus reminds them of a time when, uh, and this is from the Old Testament, when King David was was fleeing from Saul, and then when Saul was persecuting David. And, um, you know, so like David, David was the king anointed by God. But as long as Saul was there, David couldn't take his position. And, and Saul was persecuting him and driving him out of the kingdom and that. And, and David spent a lot of time on the run. And there was an occasion when um, he, he, he went to um, a temple, a synagogue, and um, he was given the, the showbread by, by the priest. Of the high priest, this was the bread that was used in certain sacrifices on the altar. Now, this was what you might call a technical violation of the law of Moses. Technically, only the priests were supposed to have it. But what Jesus does here is that he 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 quotes this story because in the Old Testament, it's quite clear that the priest giving David the showbread has God's favour on it. Even though, if you like, a technical violation, not an actual violation. There are technicalities in, in, in laws, and this is a technicality. And what Jesus is saying to them, he says, look, mateys, even the law of Moses, and, and of course he's quoting them their own scriptures. He's telling them this story about their beloved King David. All right. He says, look, even the law of Moses was a little bit flexible. All right? But he's telling them they're they're totally inflexible traditions and teachings that didn't even come from the Word of God. He says, they're beyond the pale. They are absolutely outrageous. I mean, here are the Pharisees with a myriad of laws that they were totally inflexible about and that didn't even come from the Old Testament. And Jesus here tells them a story from the Old Testament that shows that there was flexibility even in regards to the law of Moses so you know I mean Jesus is showing them from their own scriptures just how wrong they are with all their traditions and laws that weren't from the Bible and again he says you do not understand I desire mercy not sacrifice and he quotes Hosea 6 6 again because of course the spirit of the law everything God is merciful the Pharisees, all they had was a harsh, cold externalism that took no account of, of, of people at all. And then he then tells them, he says, "Look, son of man, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath." So he's saying, "Don't, don't, don't tell me <laughs> what it's all right to do and not do on the Sabbath, matey, because I'm the one who gave those laws. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath." And um, this, this would not have gone down well with the Pharisees, because remember, all the crowds are around. And all the crowds looking at Jesus and seeing all the messianic signs that he's working. Then Jesus goes to the synagogue, would have been on this, this, this same day, and uh, there's a man there with withered hands, and the, the Pharisees virtually dare Jesus to heal him on the Sabbath. For Jesus to have healed someone on the Sabbath would have broken just about every tradition of the elders that there ever was. It would have been the cardinal sin, if you like. And so they virtually challenged Jesus to heal this man with the withered hands. And Jesus tells them, he says, look, you would help a sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath and that would be okay because according to the tradition of the elders if you if your sheep fell in a hole, it was alright to take the sheep out of the hole you could do that on the Sabbath, that was allowed but not healing the tradition of the elders didn't allow healing of human beings on the Sabbath and Jesus says, look, men are more valuable than sheep so he healed the man with the withered arm which was, of course, the uh, this was the final red rag to the bull. And Matthew says the Pharisees went out and they plotted to kill him. And uh, he, Jesus then goes on to heal many sick people. But he tells them all. He says, "Look, don't don't go out and tell everyone who I am. Don't don't go and shout it abroad too much." Matthew says th- this fulfilled Isaiah forty two. He gives some quotes about Messiah. He will not quarrel or cry out. A bruised reed he won't break. A smouldering wick he will not stuff out. Jesus didn't want some big triumphalistic, he didn't want people going around yelling and screaming who he was. Then we have another instance of a blind and mute demoniac delivered. The blind is not as significant as the fact of the muteness. Here we have another demon causing muteness cast out, another messianic miracle. And all the people, Matthew says, said, could this be the son of David? They say, well, this is the Messiah, isn't it? And the Pharisees now repeat their accusation, here's another Messianic miracle, according to their teaching, they repeat their accusation that Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan, Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Jesus responds by saying, look, a kingdom divided against itself will fall. He says to say that Satan is casting out Satan is just nuts. And he says, by whom do your people drive them out then? He says, you you lot, you cast demons out. If I'm doing it by the devil, who are you doing it by? Uh, And Jesus just shows the ridiculous, you know, kind of like, you know, this thing that they're accusing him of doing this by the power of Satan. This is when Jesus says, look, you bind the strong man before plundering his house. He says, the fact that I have such power over Satan proves to you that I am Messiah and that Satan is completely under my control. And this was when Jesus teaches about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and of course it's the national sin of Israel rejecting Jesus knowing that he was the Messiah and Jesus quite specifically says that this sin was unforgivable in this age and the age to come if this age the Old Testament age the age of Israel it wasn't forgivable then because Israel was cut out of the vine. The age to come, the church age, not forgivable then, because as long as the church is here, Israel is still cut out of the vine. But of course, when the Great Tribulation comes after the rapture, we're back in the age of Israel, then it will be forgivable. Israel will be grafted back in. But it's this, the sin against the Holy Spirit, that that destines Israel to be judged by God. So that rather than the kingdom of God coming, their rejection of Jesus meant that they were going to be cut out of the vine, and they were going to be replaced for a period of time, by the Gentile church. And Jesus piles into the Pharisees here, and he says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? By your words, you will be condemned. And at this point, the Pharisees and the teachers, believe it or not, have the gall to ask for a sign. I mean, as if they hadn't had enough. They, they, they've got messianic miracles. And they say, go on, Jesus, work another one. And this is where Jesus says, look, the only sign given you will be the sign of Jonah. Now notice the significance of Jonah. Jonah, under his ministry, saw the Gentiles believe. He saw God's kingdom come to the Gentiles. Because now Israel's going to be cast out. Cut out of the vine. And of course Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus said, in the same way, I'm going to be in the bowels of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus is here saying the sign that you're gonna get is my death and my resurrection because you're gonna murder me and I'm gonna be raised again from the dead. That's the only sign that you're gonna get now. And um, and he says to them, Nineveh will judge you because Nineveh believed through the ministry of Jonah. They're refusing to believe under the ministry of the Son of God himself. And, um, and, and, and he says in the same way the Queen of the South, she'll judge you as well. She marvelled at Solomon's wisdom. And she was a Gentile. He says something better than Solomon is here. Oh, the, the, the judgment that was going to... And then he then compares the people of that generation. He, he compares them to someone who's, who's had a demon cast out of them. And this demon goes out and uh, he, he gets seven mates who are even worse than him. And they, they find this person unoccupied and they all go back in. And he says, you're like that person. You, you, the worst, you, you're going to be in a worse state now. Like, Messiah coming was like having a demon cast out. His mere presence was a cleansing influence, and yet they've rejected him. So they're going to be seven times worse off, just like someone who's had a demon cast out and then ends up with seven more in them. He so says, you know, the, the last condition um, is going to be worse than the first. And um, at this point, Jesus's mother and brothers turn up wanting to speak to him and people come and say, look your mother and your brothers are outside, they want to talk to you and Jesus' reply is, and this is where he got to remember Mr Too Slow, first let me go and bury my father, let the dead bury their own dead Jesus said, who is my mother? who are my brothers? he says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven now, Jesus wasn't rejecting his earthly family, but he was getting his priorities right because those who were believing on him were his family as well. Now, the events of this chapter, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the Pharisees, uh, sort of like having had ample proof on the basis of their own teaching that he was Messiah. And, and, and the real, they've had the leper, and they've had another example of, of demons being cast out of people who were mute. Now, on the basis of that, this proved to them beyond doubt that Jesus was Messiah, not just on the basis of the Old Testament, Jesus had done that, but on the basis of their own teachings as well. They knew that he was Messiah. They nevertheless rejected him and accused him of casting out the demons by the power of Satan, which is a nonsense. I mean, if if you're going to come up with, with an argument against someone, make it a sensible one. I mean, that is just silly, all right. Now, on the basis of the events here, Israel is now going to be cut out of the vine. The kingdom is not going to come to Israel at this point. The kingdom is now postponed until a future date after the church age. And we're going to see Jesus more and more now veering towards establishing the disciples to build the church. And of course that church, though it started off with Jewish believers, has always been largely Gentile. So this is pivotal. And when we come into chapter 13, we see a basic change in Jesus' approach in his ministry. And his approach now is this. Up to this point, he's worked miracles to demonstrate who he is, and he has taught plainly. With, with every explanation that's needed. In chapter 13, Matthew now tells us that Jesus changes his approach completely. Miracles are still going to be worked, but they're not so much for demonstrating who he was. They're just miracles being worked to help people. But what happens now is Jesus uses now the technique of what is called parabolic teaching. He starts to teach in parables. And the nature of his teaching is such that he explains the meaning to his disciples. But everyone else hearing his teaching are left scratching their head wondering what he means. And to find out they've got to go up and ask him. And Matthew tells us that this is actually a fulfilment of Jeremiah chapter 5 and Isaiah chapter 6. When it talks about parables. And both those scriptures in the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Isaiah, are in the context of Israel having been, or Israel, about to be taken into captivity by Gentile nations. And of course what happens is that here, having rejected Jesus, what happens is that in AD 70 the Romans invade, they destroy the temple, and Israel is taken off into captivity so irrevocably that they stayed there virtually until 1948. So, the parables themselves, according to Old Testament prophecy, were a sign of coming captivity and judgment and Israel being out of God's will. And this is why, also, when we come on to Corinthians, all right, why Paul, well, you know, it's in Acts as well, why speaking in tongues was also a sign of judgment on Israel, because, you know, nations have a foreign tongue carting Israel off. Hebrew, their own language was gone. They had to speak the tongues of other nations. So this is a portent. The parables, as later on speaking in tongues will be, becomes a portent and a sign of Israel's coming judgment because they have rejected Jesus in the full knowledge of who he was. And then in in this chapter 13, we we now have Jesus uh, teaching He's sitting in a boat, all right, and, and he's teaching the crowds are on the shore. And he, he tells the parable of the sower. Now it's parable after parable after parable. And uh, the parable of the sower, um, you know, there are f- four seeds, all right, three of them believers and uh, one of them an unbeliever, all right. And, of course, the point is, the, I mean, one seed that's an unbeliever just just dies and he's gone completely. But of the other three seeds that take, all right, Only one of them really abides and carries fruit. So you get two who fall away. The first one, they become Christians, but they fall away when persecution arises. The second seed fall away later on, the the love of money and the cares of the world, blah, blah, blah. But only one abides. And even that brings forth varying degrees of fruit. And so there you have it you know that sadly not all Christians do abide to the end and, and those who do not all really bring forth loads of fruit that's that's a challenge and um, and of course he, he only explains it to his disciples so he, he tells the parable then he takes the disciples aside and he explains it to them anyone else who wants to know got to come and ask him eyeball contact with Jesus dangerous if you are rejecting him um, then you have the parable of um, of the weeds, you've got a bloke. He's sown his harvest, and then overnight, um, an enemy comes and 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 sows weeds in his harvest. And uh, the servant said, "No, let's go and pull them up." And uh, the man said, "No, leave them to grow, and then in the harvest, we'll separate the weeds uh, You know, the weeds from the harvest um, at the harvest time, and that will get explained um, <coughs> shortly." Then a parable that of the mustard seed. Uh, the kingdom of God, like a mustard seed, it becomes a large tree and the birds of the air perch in branches. Now this is directly the symbolism in Ezekiel and Daniel of the kingdoms of the world. And uh, the mustard seed becomes a large tree and the kingdom of God starts off really small mustard seed, but eventually it will become global, all right, and all the nations of the world will be brought into it. Then the parable of the yeast affecting the whole batch of dough, same idea, tiny little bit Affects absolutely everything. So the small beginnings of the gospel in Jerusalem two thousand years ago, the ultimate global consequences of it. Um, then, then Matthew just just then comes in and he shows again how this parabolic teaching, this new method that Jesus is using, fulfills Psalm seventy-eight. All right, so it's just a little brackets aside that Matthew goes goes into. Uh, now Jesus explains the parable of the weeds to the disciples, he takes them apart, and he says, look, what's going to happen, all right, at the end of the age, um, you know, at the second coming, is that you've got the, the harvest and the weeds growing together, believers and unbelievers. Well, what's going to happen is that the uh, the sons of the kingdom um, are going to be separated by the angels from the sons of evil, from the unbelievers. So, you know, before Jesus judges, you know, like the nations at the second coming, all believers are going to be separated by the angels. So they don't end up, you know, being caught up in, in, in a judgment on unbelievers. Um, then he tells the parable of, of a hidden treasure in a field and, and the pearl of great price, the idea someone finds a treasure in a field. They sell all they've got to buy the field and get the treasure and then a collector who sees a pearl and it's fantastic he sells everything he's got to him by this pearl and of course that jesus is so precious that it's worth getting rid of everything to have him he's the treasure in the field he's the pearl of great price and yet from his point of view jesus died for us we're the treasure in the field and we're the pearl of great price which is unbelievable so that that works both ways i think uh... then there's a parable about um, a fishing net and a fisherman in the fishing net, he's got good fish and bad fish. And the fishermen separate the bad fish out and chuck them back in. And he get, it says, you know, in, in the last days that the angels will separate believers and unbelievers at the end of the age. So that uh, sort of like is a reference back to the parable of the weeds. And um, and then he tells the parable of a an owner of a house who brings out um, you know, he, he goes into his storeroom and in this storeroom he's got new treasures as well as old treasures. And he gets them all out because they're treasures. And of course what you've got here is that Jesus is bringing the new covenant to supersede the old. But the point is the old and there's still treasure in the old covenant. We're set free from the law, of course we are. We're not under law or under grace. But my goodness, the Old Testament, the treasure, there of God's dealings. So Bible teaching, because this is what Jesus is doing—he's teaching. All right, Bible teaching brings out the old and the new treasures, New Testament and Old Testament. That—that's how teaching should be. And then, and uh, this this brings to to the close um, this 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 talk. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and is completely rejected by the people. The response he gets is. Isn't this the carpenter's son? His brothers and sisters are here. We know him. I mean, this is familiarity breeding contempt gone mad. And they come. They work on the assumption that regardless of all your miracles, blah, 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 the point is you grew up amongst us. How can you be Messiah? Which again is, is such ridiculous logic. But they reject him. But the point is that when people reject Jesus, it's because they've taken offense at him and they're just looking for an excuse to reject him. Whatever reason they give for rejecting him, that's the smoke screen. That's the excuse. The reason people reject Jesus is, as Matthew says here, of the people in Nazareth, is they took offense at him. That's why people reject Jesus. It's as simple as that. And this is where Jesus says, "Um, only in your own town and own house is a prophet without honour. So a prophet is not without honour except within his own house, to put it the other way, as the King James Version does. Familiarity breeds contempt, and uh, Jesus certainly met contempt there. And and of course when we get to Luke's Gospel, we'll actually see that Jesus went to Nazareth on a former occasion, earlier on in his ministry. And the result of which was that they actually tried to kill him. Because uh, he went in their synagogue and taught and he offended them so much that they actually wanted to kill him. And uh, Matthew just tells us, and it shouldn't come as much surprise, that Jesus didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And, um, you know, so there we see, amazingly, a limitation on what Jesus can do because of lack of faith. So there are times when the Lord wants to do things, and he would if there's faith, but he can't if there isn't, which is, again, a bit gobsmacking. So where we've come thus far, we've seen... um, The fact that Jesus has made it clear to Israel that he is their Messiah. They know he is their Messiah. He has proved it to them, not just on the basis of the Old Testament itself, but according to Pharisaic Judaism at the time. Jesus is making it clear that that Pharisaic Judaism, all the traditions of the elders, are completely wrong. They're not of God at all. They're an absolute hindrance. He would hold no truck with them at all. He's proved he's Messiah. The leaders of Israel have officially rejected him. And as a result of that, Jesus has introduced the parables which comes now as a portent that it is inevitable that Israel will now go into captivity as they have done before, that they will be cut out of the vine and they will be replaced as Revelation goes on through the New Testament by the Gentile church. Anyway, I hope to be able to to finish Matthew next time. So come back next week.